Hello, this is Leslie Garfield Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Alan Rostrin about the First Amendment. In this episode, Alan Rostrin, Associate Dean of Students, William R. Jacks Constitutional Law Scholar and Professor of Law, explains the First Amendment free speech boundaries and provides an outstanding analytical framework for those challenged with answering a free speech question on an exam, or even on the bar. I lived and breathed the First Amendment when I was a law student writing my Law Review article, which focused on time, place, and manner issues. But that was many moons ago, way before cell phones and social media, or students standing alongside the Olympic torch path with a sign that read, Bong Hits for Jesus. Fortunately, Professor Rostrin, who also lectures on constitutional law for Kaplan Bar Prep, has saved the day to brush up my understanding. This is a great episode and one of value, even if you aren't studying constitutional law right now, because you will be left with understanding the limitations of your constitutional rights to free speech. And by the way, you still can't yell fire in a crowded building. Once again, it's time for my plea. If you could rate us or subscribe to us on any of the platforms on which you listen to us, or like us on social media platforms, I would really appreciate this. What keeps me going is knowing that I'm helping law students learn the law, and the more feedback I get, the more inspired I am. And as always, you can contact us. You can reach us at gmail at lawtofact.gmail.com, or you can tweet us at lawtofact. And all of our episodes are available at all times at www.lawtofact.com. So even if you're not taking constitutional law now, know that this episode, like every other one, will be available when the right time comes. If you're listening to Law to Fact, chances are at some point you'll be taking the bar exam. Well, getting ready for the bar exam means you'll need to choose the study program that's right for you. Kaplan Bar Review will get you ready to take on test day with confidence by offering $100 off live and on-demand bar review with offer code LESLIE100. Visit www.kaplanbarreview.com today to sign up. And here's my discussion with Professor Rostrin. Thanks for joining me. So I'd love to talk about the First Amendment with you. Students who are taking constitutional law deal with the First Amendment, but really it works its way into other classes as well. And I know the First Amendment's quite vast, so uh, you want to give us a little introduction and maybe we can talk about some parameters. Sure. Um, it's certainly an interesting issue, so at least it has that going for it for students. It, it is complicated, though. I guess the basic way I, I always like for any subject I teach or, or study to have some kind of you know map, overall map or picture of it in my mind. And First Amendment, I think, is at least at that overarching level is relatively easy to do because you've got the text of the First Amendment and it spells out these different rights that we have, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Uh, right to assemble and the, the religion clauses, of course, the ex- free exercise clause and the establishment clause. So that's sort of one way to think of it is that it it does list these basic rights that, that everybody would be familiar with. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about freedom of speech first. As a student um, reading kind of the text of all the Supreme Court decisions, well, I, I guess let's start with this. What is one of the premier cases that students are going to look at when they're dealing with First Amendment speech? Hmm. I don't know if it's an area where there's any one in particular. There's I, what I find hard about freedom of speech to teach it or to learn it myself. It's I don't think any of the specific concepts 
are extremely difficult to understand. It's not like, you know, the rule against perpetuities in property or some of the, maybe some other things in constitutional law, like the, the dormant commerce clause or something that sort of confuses people. It's more the, um, each part of it is pretty understandable and each part of it has really interesting cases, you know, and there's new ones being, you know, sort of decided all the time by the Supreme Court things in, you know, recent years, there's been stuff about like, you know, protests at, at funerals, mm-hmm. um, or about people who, uh, you know, do you have a, a right to free speech to, to tell a lie about yourself and claim that you have military honors and awards and that sort of thing. That was decided in the last couple of years. There's more high pro certainly the biggest high profile stuff in recent years is probably stuff like Citizens United about um, corporations and labor unions and their, their freedom of speech rights to spend money on political things. Right. So there's all that. The, the hard thing I think about understanding all those issues are really interesting mm-hmm. and they're, they're, controversial and there's a philosophical side to them. They're all really interesting. I think what's hard is to put all the pieces of freedom of speech together. You know, I teach, for example, I teach torts and it just is really easy to think of how that will be organized. You have a claim like like negligence, for example, it has elements and you'd go through them, you know, duty and breach and you'd go through those elements in order and it really just, it would be hard to miss the logical organization of that. Freedom of speech has all these different parts and, uh, you know, I think it's helpful to try and diagram them or make a flow chart or something, but it's a real challenge to know where they all fit together. Great. Well, okay. So can you, by the way, I teach torts too. So you're right. I always say to students, no. I teach torts and contracts. And with torts, you know, you have three elements of battery or uh, assault. Yeah. Or and then contracts, it's kind of like I call it the story of contracts because you really have to know the whole thing. And so I suspect that's kind of like what's going on with the First Amendment. So can you walk us through what I mean, I know this is kind of a snapshot, but maybe walk us through what students need to know and how they need to think about understanding the First Amendment. Sure. Um, so, you know, first off, I mean, with any of these, you have you have the text. It's always good to at least pay some attention to the text of the constitutional provision, you know, but it doesn't take you that far because it just says that we'll have freedom of speech, that Congress won't abridge the freedom of speech. And so I, I would say if I in my mind, when I try to think through how all these different issues would sort themselves out, the first question would just be, what is speech? Mm-hmm. And there's very interesting issues about that. It's obvious that it includes verbal communication and it includes written communication. Um, but then you get into a lot of other areas. You get into issues, you know, you might, you might even think, well, I think that's really all it covers. That's what speech is when, you know, when it's words, whether they're written down or they're spoken, it's words. You get into issues then, what about images? What if, what if somebody makes a painting? of something is that or music what if somebody you know a song the lyrics of it we would think of as being speech but what if somebody makes a musical composition that's just an instrumental piece is that um you know is that communicative enough that that should be speech and probably the area where there's been the most you get into tattoos and stuff like that whether that counts as speech so probably the area where mm -hmm. i'm sorry no i was going to say i remember a case i'm not that schooled in first amendment law but i remember a case where um the the family of a victim wore a button into the courtroom. Yeah, and they're just the 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 idea that this button was, um, I think, speech. Right? Would that be something that would be? Speech? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, you know, to the extent it has writing on it, it's probably more clear cut. But you know, one of the other famous cases, this was from the 1960s during the Vietnam War, was about um, you know kids who wanted to wear a black armband to school to protest against the Vietnam War. It didn't have any words. But um, but the Supreme Court concluded that it was 
expressive enough. The, the test for this sort what, what what really gets difficult, I think, is when it's really a sort of expressive conduct, mm -hmm. or sometimes they'll use the term symbolic speech, but I think really just, I think of it more as expressive conduct. You know, you could, it could either be a hand gesture, you know, a peace sign, or maybe a rude gesture or something like that, but, or it could be other, you know, one of the things that has come up is people burning something, whether it's the American flag as a form of protest, or back during the Vietnam War era, they might burn their draft card. Um, are those things, you know, there have been cases about like honking your horn or flashing your headlights. Is that a form of, you know, expression? And so uh, basically the test the Supreme Court has for this sort of stuff is, you know, when, it, when it's not words, it's, it's sort of a question of intent and understanding. Is it something that was intended to communicate a message and is it reasonably going to be understood by people as communicating a message? And most of these things I've been mentioning would be found to be speech because, you know, if you see someone burning an American flag, you have it, it is probably assuming it's done as a form of protest. You it is intended to communicate something very strongly and um, and people would understand what it is. You might not understand that you don't have to understand exactly what their issue is, mm -hmm. um, but you, you at least have some sense of of, uh, of what they're trying to communicate by that. So that's sort of I think the first difficult issue is even just sort of deciding what we're going to count as as speech. So, yes. Yeah, so, all right. So the first thing is whether it is speech. And in order to decide whether it's speech, we're going to look at intent and understanding. And if when someone wears a black armband into school to protest the First Amendment, their intent is to basically say, I disagree with the government, and people understood that. So that kind of met it. If when families wear victims, right, the picture of the victim, their intent is to communicate to the jury that this was a real person, and um, that's understood to kind of have an impact on the jury. Can you give me an example of something that did not, that failed that test? Yeah. I mean, I think I was just coming to my mind would be another, you might have other issues, for example, about dress codes for students and somebody, you know, they want to be able to wear shorts and the dress code at their school doesn't let them wear shorts or they want to wear a hat and they're not allowed to wear a hat. And, or there's been things about like teachers and there were restrictions on whether they could have a beard or a mustache or something like that. And, um, and courts might not be inclined to find that these things are speech. What does it communicate if you want to wear shorts, you know, uh, it's, or if you want to wear jeans as opposed to some other kind of pants that they require you to wear to your school or something. It just doesn't really, unless there are circumstances where there's an issue that's a protest movement that has arisen around the article of clothing, mm -hmm. it may not be something where there's really any intent to communicate something and there may not, well, who would understand what it means? You, you, you see somebody wanting to wear shorts, they just want to stay cooler on a hot day. And it doesn't really communicate a message that anyone would be able to perceive. Perfect. All right. So now we have the test. It's funny, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about my law review article that I wrote when I was in law school, which was about the right of um, the government to regulate when you can report exit polling. And so <laughs> I guess I did talk about the first oh. a little bit. Anyway, so mm -hmm. which brings me to now we have the test. And if it is speech, the next question is whether the government can regulate your ability to speak. And when we say speak, yes. it could be have a tattoo, have an image, what have you. So when mm -hmm. can the government, I mean, because generally the government can't, right? That's the purpose of the First Amendment. So when can the government regulate speech? 
Yeah, you know, the, the some people there there are a few people who would take the First Amendment very literally, like Justice Hugo Black was famous for this, right? He was very literal minded about things, very absolutist. So in his view, when it says Congress can't have laws that abridge freedom of speech, that's what it means, and you can't have any laws that restrict people's speech. Most people, most judges don't feel that way. Instead, it's you know, it's a right that's important, but it's not absolute or unlimited, like like any other rights for the most part. There's it's a matter of degree, and if the government, under some circumstances, could be able to regulate it, so that's where we get into the complexity of different rules and different tests, and that sort of thing would apply. With with freedom of speech, I think one thing that's a little bit distinctive is there are sort of right off the bat there are certain categories of speech that generally don't receive any protection, mm-hmm. and I think those are always sort of interesting. So um, one one example is obscene speech. Obscenity. Now, that's it's very hard to define what it what that means, what what uh, what speech is obscene and what is not. But there is at least some category of speech that is so explicit, so sexually explicit that it is obscene and and completely outside the bounds of constitutional protection. Mm-hmm. So that would be like, porn, like um, virtual porn of children or something like that. Child, well, child pornography is one category of speech that definitely doesn't receive any protection. You can't, you know, produce or possess child pornography and then say, "Oh, I have a right to freedom of speech for that." You you do not have a right to that. But even other pornography, if it was sufficiently hardcore that courts deemed it to be obscene, mm-hmm. it would not be protected. These days, there's not a lot of enforcement of that. I mm-hmm. think just with the way electronic communication and that sort of thing, it's harder, but in the past to enforce, but in the past, you know, you would have these cases about movies or magazines or that sort of thing. And judges would be looking at the stuff, some of it, to be honest, the stuff that was produced obscenity litigation back in the 1940s, 1950s, even in the 1960s, by modern standards is very tame. It would be movies that we, by our modern standards, we wouldn't consider pornographic, but it was, you know, it was a different era. But but it's very hard to know where to draw the line. They sort of base it on, there's a test called Miller, the Miller test from uh, Miller versus California, but uh, about basically looking at the degree of the offensiveness of it. Is it not just that it's sexually explicit, but in it's, they use the term prurient, which you don't hear very often in other contexts, but prurient is it? Yeah, apparent interest, which is sort of like a shameful, degrading interest, not a healthy interest in sex, but a sort of a shameful, degrading one. Is it patently offensive? Is it just, you know, very offensive to people? And then there's this sort of notion that gets interesting, too, of does it does it lack serious literary, artistic, political or scientific merit? So you could have a very explicit uh, movie, for example, very sexually explicit. But if you can contend that it has some literary or artistic merit, then you might be able to you know, defend it on that basis. The the fam- most famous thing, I think, in all of obscenity law is Potter Stewart's uh, remark in a, in a judicial opinion at the Supreme Court that he, he couldn't really define what you know, hardcore pornography or obscenity is, but he said, I know it when I see it. And he said, this movie in the case before us is not it. But people almost sort of mock that and say, oh, it's just, you know, when you see it, judges can't tell us what it is and can't articulate a standard, but they they purport to know it when they see it. Was that the movie Marlon Brando was in? There was a case about the the, uh, last tango in Paris. There was a case about, this was a this was a different case okay. about a different movie that, again, wasn't really cl- clearly wasn't pornographic, 
by well, today's standards. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I mean, you watch an R-rated movie today and you think that should be G. So, like, The Jerk with Steve Martin yeah. is R-rated. Um, are there any yeah. words... <laughs> and it blows my mind. Are there any words that have ever been deemed um, obscene? Like, just... And you know, I'm not going to say those words here, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say I would say no. There's no word that is so terrible that I would say just on its own that it necessarily is outside the scope of constitutional protection. There's no word that's so bad that it's like disavowed as being protected, but it depends on the context. And so the Supreme Court did famously have a case about the the F word that a guy had written on his on his jacket and he was in a courthouse actually carrying the jacket but and police had seen him outside the outside the courtroom. And so and they they basically decided look that's protected by freedom of speech. And I will say this was back in the 1960s. I always, when I talk to students about that case, I try to underscore to them the the standards of language were different. Using that word really was shocking yeah. and considered very inappropriate and, and vulgar. And people would not use that in, you know, workplace settings or it, is, it becomes more common today. And so you do hear it and people sort of in a joking way will just say it. And, you know, it was very different. It would have been, you know, there was even a gender sort of dimension to it. I, women, it would have been considered very outrageous for a woman to have used that term, I think, mm-hmm. in the 1960s. And things change. And so so the, so even in that context, that word, and it was used in kind of a political context, even to he was complaining about the draft. So um, but so but so but there could be con, con, situations in which somebody uses profanity and it, and it could lose constitutional protection, but it would have to. Uh, the, one of the terms they'll use, one of the categories of unprotected speech is fighting words. And I always thought that was sort of an interesting, vivid, you know, term for it. It's, it's the sort of thing you would say to somebody and it's so offensive, they're likely to punch you. Mm-hmm. You know, they're likely to just punch you in the nose if you say something really insulting about them or their family or their, you know, their parents or children or something. So you could, and again, the cases about this where they found fighting words in the 1940s, it was language that we wouldn't probably consider so shocking today. Um, but you know, it was a different time or whatever. So if you were to, if you were to use profanity in a way that was so uh, antagonistic to somebody or so personalized that they are likely to respond by uh, fighting you, uh, that, that, that would lose constitutional protection. Um, if you use the profanity in a, in a way that was seriously threatening, mm-hmm. that is, loses constitutional protection as well. So if you make a true threat that is a serious expression of, of, of threat to do violence to somebody, mm-hmm. and there's really interesting cases about that. There was a, the first one the Supreme Court had was about a guy who had said something about shooting President Lyndon Johnson at a Vietnam War protest, and he was arrested for threatening the president. And the Supreme Court said, well, in the, in the context of a political rally, nobody would have taken it seriously that he was really threatening it was it was an expression of political feeling or whatever. It wasn't a real threat. They've had more. All, there was a, an enormous amount of interesting case law and litigation in recent years about social media. Yeah. There's so much so much of 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 the battleground of free speech these days is on Facebook and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so there was a very interesting case a couple of years ago from Pennsylvania that went to Supreme Court about a guy who had said really threatening vicious things about his estranged wife and he had a domestic restraining uh, order violence restraining order and that sort of thing but he said that 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 it wasn't a serious threat that it was 
he was sort of trying to write poetry or like he liked Eminem, the, yeah. the yeah. rap artist Eminem. Yeah. And he said that's what he was trying to do was just venting his feelings and he didn't really mean it seriously. Yeah. And so the Supreme Court, they didn't, they, they had to decide sort of what mental, it was kind of a criminal law thing about what mental state of mind would be sufficient to find that he had, was, could be uh, prosecuted for threatening her. And how did that case decide, how did that case come out? Well, they didn't decide the ultimate merits of whether he was guilty or not. What they decided is essentially that you couldn't have like a strict liability kind of a standard. Mm -hmm. You couldn't or even sort of a negligence standard where you'd say it, it, it wouldn't be enough to simply convince the jury that a reasonable person, a reasonable objective observer would have found his remarks to, to constitute a, a real, true, th serious threat. There would have to be some subjective understanding in his mind, you'd have to take that into account as well and find that either he knowingly was trying to threaten her or maybe at least that it was some kind of recklessness or something. So it was kind of a, it was one of those decisions that was somewhat inconclusive and didn't, wasn't the full end of the story, but and it did get his conviction overturned. And, and, and I guess what I'm getting from all of this too is, and this is true with um, libel and social media, which is, it's really hard to prove libel yeah. through social media because of context. And it seems to me that when you're thinking about First Amendment and what's absolutely prohibited, it's not just the words, but it's the words in context. And the context isn't just the setting, but it's the community standard, which I know comes up sometimes too, because words that were yeah. not okay in the 40s are okay. I mean, today almost anything goes, although I'm sure there's you know still some bastions of protection. I'm assuming you still can't yell fire in a crowded uh, um, movie theater. But, um, yeah. but yeah, all right, so... So this is helpful. So we know that it is free. We know that it's speech if it is communicated. We look at that test. And then once it's speech, some speech is, is uncategorically, um, that's the wrong word, the word I'm, is absolutely unprotected. Protected. Yeah, Unprotected, right? Some mm -hmm. speech is unprotected. Mm -hmm. And then there's some speech that is only unprotected in certain instances, right? Is time, right. place, and matter still a, a rule? Yeah, I mean, there's some, first again, there's some categories of speech that are only sort of partially protected or, you know, receive some, you mentioned defamation is a good example of that. And it depends on, I mean, there, you, there is some constitutional protection for false speech, mm -hmm. you know, to the, you get, and it gets into all the complexity of, you know, was it a public figure that you're talking about or was it an issue of public interest and that sort of thing? So there's, you know, there's more protection depending on what you're talking about. If you're talking about an elected official, you can, you know, they'd have to prove malice, you know, that it was knowing or reckless or whatever. And on the other hand, if it's a private matter, there's less protection. So, so there's that. I mean, commercial speech still receives less protection than most other speech. So the idea is, you know, if, if it's, if it's, something an advertisement or something like that that's being run and it's for a business that that needs less protection than other kinds of speech that that may change in the future the supreme court seems inclined these days to give more protection to commercial speech but um student speech is an area i think that's really interesting too um you know i mentioned before the case about the armbands and, mm -hmm. and the vietnam war and and there's there's just a lot of other interesting cases. Students, especially at like the high school level or the middle school level or that sort of thing, they don't have as much protection, but they still have some freedom of speech. And so there is an interesting line of cases about you know student school, uh, newspapers, school newspapers, or there was one about a you know a, a student government campaign speech that was a little off color, and whether the school could punish the students for that. Or there was a very weird case from Alaska where the 
yeah. uh, the Olympic procession was going by oh, and the guy unfurled yeah, yeah. a, a banner that said, I think, bong hits for Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of this nonsense phrase. Mm-hmm. And could the school punish him for that? So, so you've got, and then probably the most controversial area in recent years, I mentioned before about Citizens United and about the whole issue of to what extent does spending your money, whether it's spending it yourself as an independent expenditure or contributing it to a political party or a political campaign, to what extent is that a form of freedom of speech mm-hmm. that deserves protection? Right now, it's it's political contributions that receive only a limited level of protection, but again, the Supreme Court seems inclined to, to expand the protection of it. Then you get, so you get through all that. Right. And you decide what kind of speech you have. And uh, I mean, another issue then that I'd say that really comes up is where does the speech occur? That can be important, too. Mm -hmm. Um, You you certainly have a lot of protection for your freedom of speech on your own private property. You don't really have a right to speak on somebody else's private property. I can't go over my neighbor's yard and have a, you know, have a protest speech or something if they don't want to Mm -hmm. allow me to do so. But then what's difficult is what about public places, government buildings or public streets and that sort of thing. So then there's sort of a, 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 a rules about different different public places, ranging from places that are not really appropriate for speech activities, places like, you know, the mayor's office or a, a public school classroom where they're trying to have the class or, you know, down at the police station or something in their offices. Those are really not for speech. So those they can kick you out. And, but but uh, and then you have places that are sort of the quintessential public forums where speech activities would be very much allowed. The the classic is you can sort of get up on your soapbox in the in the town square or on the street corner or whatever and give your speech or in the park or whatever. Um so sidewalks and parks and that sort of thing. And then there's other places that kind of fall in the middle and are kind of tricky places if you have like a public library and they have a meeting room and then they're gonna let people use it for meetings or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And and so to circle to what you said, yeah, one one of the when you go through all that then really I think what becomes if you wanted to boil down all freedom of speech law to really one core test or issue, I, I would say it's about whether or not the government is regulating the speech in a in a content neutral way or in a way that's based on the content of the speech. In other words, what really bothers us is censorship, okay. right? That's yeah. the concern about freedom of speech. The government would be censoring certain ideas. And that is very troubling if they if they don't, you know, if they want to let you one party, the, the one, one of the political parties can express themselves more than another, or they're letting you speak in favor of tax, you know, increases, but not tax cuts or vice versa, mm-hmm. or pro-life, but not pro-choice or whatever. They're, they're censoring and they're, they're, they're picking and choosing which ideas they're going to favor. And that's really troubling and courts would be very reluctant to allow that kind of thing. But you have other regulation of, the, as you said, the time and the place and the manner of speech and courts are much are, are more willing to allow that, whereas they'd apply a kind of strict scrutiny to a content-based censorship of speech. They would apply a more of a, a pretty weak intermediate kind of scrutiny to a time, place, and manner regulation. And so, for example, you know, you have a right to express yourself, but not through a loudspeaker at three o'clock in the morning right. in a residential neighborhood. Right. It's not that the government care really even cares what you're saying. They may like your message, but it's just not the appropriate time and place and manner. Right. And so it's funny, I just just a, a personal note, I, I grew up in New Jersey in Newark Airport. They used to have hard Krishnas as you tried to get on the plane. And yeah. I remember that case where they said, you know, that the Hare Krishnas can can preach their 
um, opinions, but they can't do it while you're trying to get on an airplane because you were kind of captive, yeah. you know, before. Um, all right. So this is really helpful and interesting. And so as you're speaking, I'm kind of, to your point, I think the only way to handle this is to roadmap it. And so what I've come up with, and I'd love for you to kind of steer me in the right direction, no pun intended, is that generally speaking, the First Amendment allows us to say whatever we want. However, there are instances where it can be regulated. And the first thing that a student has to ask themselves is if, in fact, it's speech. Obviously, if it's something said, it's speech. But if it's not something that is necessarily said, we're going to kind of look at both the intent and the understanding. So now we have that basket of speech. And then the issue becomes is can the government regulate that basket of speech? If it's obscenity, they can regulate it, right? And some kinds of speech has this minimum level of protection, which is commercial speech, student speech, spending limits. And if they can regulate it, then the question is, what can they regulate? And then we're going to look at um, whether it's content neutral or content specific. And we're also going to look at with the regulation, how they're regulating it, whether the forum that the person speaking is able to kind of give their voice in that area. Does that kind of make sense to you? Yes. Yes, that's a good sort of overall. Now, I say there's, of course, there's all kinds of other complexity to it that you could work in there as you take a course um, and, and and get more and more of the details. But that's, a, that's what I think of as kind of a bird's eye view of, of freedom of speech. Wonderful. This has been really, really helpful. Um, you took and, and I understand it's funny because before we actually got on the call, we talked about the fact that it's voluminous, and I understand it's voluminous, but I think that this does set out, you set out an excellent framework. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and kind of laying this forward for us. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. So that's my discussion with Professor Alan Rostron on the First Amendment. Once again, a reminder that Kaplan Bar Review is offering you $100 off their live and on-demand bar review program. Just use Leslie 100 as your code when you sign on at www.kaplanbarreview.com. Hope you enjoyed our episode. Once again, a quick plug. Please like us, rate us, communicate with us. We always appreciate any feedback we can get. Enjoy your day.